Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we start a mini-series on the maritime history of Sweden. This forms part of a programme begun last year to create a strong international foundation to the podcast. We've produced numerous episodes on maritime China, maritime Africa, maritime Australia and as a man of proud Welsh heritage we started it all off with a series on the maritime history of Wales. So do go back and get listening to all of those. But for now it's maritime Sweden. I was lucky enough to spend a little time in Sweden recently, meeting a number of their fantastic maritime historians and archaeologists. And today I can introduce you to one of them, Fred Hocker, who has the enviable job of being Director of Research at the Vasa Museum. Fred has spoken with us before about the Vasa, that great 17th century warship that was sunk on its maiden voyage. So be sure to listen to that. But today, Fred is introducing our mini-series on maritime Sweden by talking more broadly about Sweden's fascinating naval history from about 1500 on to the present day. And he explains how Sweden's modern defence thinking has been shaped by the previous 500 years. As always, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the fascinating and formidably factual Fred. Fred, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Oh, pleasure to talk to you again, Sam. So, um, this is a large subject we're going to be tackling today. Where's a sensible place to start it? Gosh, because um, we're, we're, we're talking about... Uh, the the 400 years before Sweden joined NATO, basically, <laughs> yes. and, and how naval history has contributed to current Swedish defense thinking. Exactly. That's it. In a nutshell. Yeah. How about the 16th century? Is it, can we, is it worth going back before that or is the 16th century sensible? Well, we could, yeah, we could go all the way back. I mean, last year we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Swedish Navy. Uh, which uh, we reckon from when uh, the first modern king of Sweden, uh, Gustav Eriksson, Gustav I, uh, hired and purchased ships from Lübeck uh, to provide a navy for his revolt against uh, the king of Denmark, Christian II. Uh, Sweden had been part of a, a three-way uh, joint monarchy since the 14th century called the Kalmar Union uh, under the Danish royal house. And Gustav Eriksson was a noble 
who together with a bunch of like-minded nobles decided they disliked the, what they considered the tyrannical rule of the Danish king and wanted to be independent again. And so they fought uh, a revolt for a year and a half or so uh, and managed to essentially defeat uh, Christian's forces. And part of what he needed for that was a navy. And he understood that because Sweden had so much coastline uh, and all of its uh, commercial and political contacts were on the other side of the Baltic Sea, that a navy was essential to establishing the state. And so he purchased and hired a number of ships for that first campaign for the revolt uh, and then realized that uh, a navy was going to be a central feature of Swedish foreign policy. Uh, and so after he was crowned king, Sweden became independent again, that uh, he uh, established the navy on a more or less uh, permanent footing. Uh, it tended to wax and wane with the political problems of the time until the 17th century, when his grandson, a hundred years later, Gustav Adolf, decided that uh, Sweden needed a permanent navy of purpose-built warships, both in peacetime and in wartime, that would be a, essentially a, a fixed establishment uh, that could be used as a tool for international relations. Um, and so technically we could say the navy is 500 years old, but in the navy, the way we think of a navy today as a permanent institution of, of purpose-built uh, combatant warships is really a 400-year-old phenomenon. Okay. And did they um, establish dockyards around that period? Is that at the same time we can we can see it really really having roots? Uh, we, yeah, they did. Uh, Gustav Eriksson, Gustav Vasa, we sometimes call him, Gustav I, uh, established a, a central maintenance and supply facility in Stockholm, uh, the Stockholm Navy Yard, Krebsgården it was called. Uh, it was on an island called Krebsholmen, Ship Island. Uh, which is not the current island of that name. It's uh, now the, the part of town called Blossyholmen. Um, and he established that as kind of a maintenance and supply facility, but not for the construction of new ships. Uh, his government and, the, and for 100 years afterwards decided that it would be more cost-effective rather than uh, building all your ships in a central facility, it would be more cost-effective to build the ships where the trees were. Um, because that... You could then take advantage of all the local peasant labor for harvesting the trees, getting them to the shipyard. Uh, and so you'd set up a shipyard where there was appropriate timber, build one or two ships uh, until you had exhausted that local supply. And then the next time you needed to build ships, you'd set up a, a yard somewhere else. And, they, and the Navy did that for almost 100 years until about 1618, when... Uh, Gustav Adolf uh, had the idea that he needed to renew the Navy and he needed to be have a, a very steady program of shipbuilding and he didn't have enough trained shipwrights to distribute them all over the countryside that way. So he consolidated new construction into basically one yard or two yards. Um, that uh, So the Stockholm Yard became the main center for the construction of new ships as well as maintenance and supply. Did you guys have all of the timber you needed or did you need to import a lot of it? Because when you build a ship, you need all sorts of different types of wood. And you have one, I'm thinking you have plentiful source of lovely straight pines for, for planks and stuff like that and masts. But, right. Um, what about, what about the, like the, you know, oak and things like that for the, for the, the hull? Right. Well, and, and actually timber supply is a tricky question for, for shipbuilding. 
uh, people often say talk about how you know England was denuded of timber by the shipbuilding industry, which, which is not really true. It's mostly the metals industry because it doesn't matter what kind of tree you burn, it still burns to smelt metal. Uh, but for shipbuilding, you need very, very specific kinds of trees. You need long straight trees for things like keels and deck beams and planks, but you also need broad curving trees to make all the curved timbers in the ship like uh, frames, the stem, timbers like that. Uh, and oak is the ideal shipbuilding timber. It's very durable. It's very widely distributed. It's readily available. And it's an unusual sort of tree in that it grows both in dense stands of long straight trees or as solitary trees out in fields with big spreading curved branches. Um, and so, and, and the basic species of oak that people use in Northern Europe, there are two species, Quercus robur, Quercus petraea, that are really hard to tell apart. And, you know, they're very similar. Um, but they, uh, they're they available just about everywhere. And even in Sweden, uh, oak grows up until about, oh, an hour's drive north of Stockholm. Uh, so so Sweden had uh, substantial oak reserves. Uh, and then by the 18th century, uh, those were starting to run out. Um, the, the really good timber, because you can't just clear cut a forest and use it. You have to send shipwrights into the forest and they're picking one tree out of a hundred. That, that's a good tree to make a keel out of. Uh, that tree is a good timber for the stem, that sort of thing. So the Navy Yard had gangs of carpenters going around the countryside looking for trees. And the king had a right to every oak tree in the country. Uh, he also had uh, estates of his own that he could supply timber from. And the Crown did that for a long time, up into the 16, until the 1620s. Um, but they also had, you know, Swedes will tell you that the king owned every oak tree in the country. That's not true. The king had a right to use them. That if the king needed an oak tree on your property, you couldn't refuse to sell it to him. Um, because it was a, a strategic resource. But what's interesting is that although Sweden was very rich in those kinds of natural resources, had a very small population. Uh, and once, uh, once the military machines start really got going in the 17th century, the people who you would be counting on to be woodcutters and dragging timber from the forests down to the water to be loaded on boats, a lot of those people have been conscripted into the army and they're not there anymore. So this very thinly distributed population makes it very expensive to extract the resources out of the Swedish landscape. And the big emphasis was on the metals industry, on copper and iron. So that took up a lot of the available, available labor. By the 1620s, when uh, the Crown started using private contractors to build ships, they found it was actually cost-effective rather than sourcing all the timber in Sweden they were buying some, somewhere between a third and a half of their timber abroad. Even though there was perfectly good timber in Sweden, it was more cost-effective to get it out of areas that had a better developed forest industry. So they would send gangs around Sweden to find the curved timbers that had to match the pattern, the shape of the ship. But we can see from the purchase receipts in the 1620s, for example, uh, that once they went to the private contracting, they were also sending purchasing agents to Poland uh, and to Amsterdam, the big timber markets, to buy rough sawn planks and then shipping mm. those back to Sweden. And that, and even though the, the, the freight cost for timber was something like 80% of its wholesale cost at the market, 
that was still more cost effective than trying to collect the necessary peasant labor you needed to extract trees out of the forest in within Sweden. Yeah. What about canvas and iron, other things you need for shipbuilding? Uh, well, Sweden was self-sufficient in metals. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Swedish iron was of the highest possible quality. The ore that we have in Sweden uh, has very is very low in impurities. And so it makes very good wrought iron and also is a good basis for making steel. Royal Navy in England, for all of the 17th century and most of the way through the 18th century, specified Swedish iron for all of its hardware because it was of higher quality than could be produced in England uh, until England until the English Industrial Revolution developed um, more effective uh, iron refining methods. Uh, and so Sweden had no trouble sourcing metals, copper for guns, iron for nails and bolts. All of that was sourced within Sweden. And the crown had very good access to that material. Uh, even if it was controlled, it might be controlled by private entrepreneurs. Uh, the crown had a a beneficial relationship. Canvas was an entirely different matter. The best uh, quality uh, canvas for for ship sails in these days was made out of hemp. Uh, by the 18th century, you know, we're used to thinking of flax as the main material, and then later can, and then later cotton. But the the most desirable material in the 17th century, 16th and 17th centuries, is um, uh, is hemp. And sweet and hemp is actually a little tricky to grow. It's, it's not like uh, linen flax, which you can grow almost anywhere. And even though hemp is a weed that can grow a lot of places, the right quality to make sailcloth out of has to be cultivated very carefully, has to be processed very carefully. And there really wasn't a very good hemp industry within Sweden. Uh, and so Sweden imported all of its naval hemp for rope and, uh, and canvas uh, well into the 17th century. Um, and even after they had a, an industry that made sailcloth within Sweden, they were often making it out of imported fiber. Uh, and the best quality hemp, uh, if you bought the raw fiber, came out of uh, the eastern Baltic, out of ports like Riga and Tallinn uh, in what's now Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, and, and those same sources that a lot of Western uh, places were using. But uh, Swe the Swedish Navy before the 1660s-ish, really uh, depended on buying cloth rather than buying fiber and weaving it. So they had merchants who were buying cloth. And the best quality sailcloth was made in France, uh, in northern France, at places like uh, Vitry and Noyal. Um, and in fact, the, the, the Tudor English Navy had depended very heavily on French-made sailcloth from places like Paul Dovey. Um, and by the 17th century, the English, the Royal Navy was increasingly uh, taking advantage of cloth made in Ipswich um, uh, and other places in Suffolk to provide its needs, but was still buying cloth, sailcloth in France when they weren't at war with France. Um, if you couldn't get French sailcloth, the next best quality was uh, uh, Dutch cloth, uh, Holland, Holland's Duke, as it was called. And that was made in a town called uh, Comenia. Uh, which is in the big shipbuilding centers uh, in North Holland. Um, but if you were buying that sort of stuff, you could buy both French cloth and Dutch cloth in the market in Amsterdam. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we know, for example, for Vasa, uh, the, the Navy, uh, the, the Swedish Navy in its supply contracts for most of the 17th century, specified French cloth if it was available for their sales um, and had merchants dealing with uh, uh, factors uh, who were who would, uh, could source French cloth, and but buying it in Amsterdam. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So it starts off with the Danes being the problem. Uh, and when did it change to the Russians being the problem? Uh, that, yeah, for the first 200 years or so, a little bit less, of modern Swedish history from the 1520s into the, uh, say, the 1670s, Sweden's um, traditional mortal enemy was Denmark. They were the two great kingdoms fighting for dominance in the Baltic. Um, And for a lot of that period, there was always a third player, uh, which was uh, the Dutch, because the the Dutch controlled uh, the Baltic trade, the richest trade in the world in the the Swedish and the Dutch golden age of the 17th century is not the silks and spices of the Far East. It's the really boring bulk commodities like timber, grain, and dried fish coming out of the Baltic to feed and house and fuel the growing cities of Western Europe. And the Dutch controlled that trade, which they reckoned to be worth twice as much as the silks and spices of the Far East. Uh, so the, the Dutch Golden Age is really heavily based on that. And so if there was ever a war between Sweden and Denmark, which there was maybe every 15 to 20 years, the, um, the Dutch would jump in on the weaker side so that no side could actually achieve dominance or hegemony in the Baltic. Because if they did, then they might want to shut the Dutch out and take over the trade themselves. So they, they were intent on maintaining a balance between Sweden and Denmark which they did quite successfully all through the 16th and into the 17th centuries um, until in the last major war, um, naval war that the Dutch and the, the Swedes and the Danes fought in the 1670s uh, called the Scanian War or the Skåne War, uh, where Denmark was trying to regain control of what's now Western Sweden, which had formerly been Denmark. Um, and as was typical in the, uh, the the wars between Sweden and Denmark, the Danes won all the battles and then lost the peace negotiations. 
that uh, they always chose the wrong moment to start negotiating. Rather than when they were at the point of their greatest strength, they started negotiating. They got greedy, would go too far, and the Swedes would start to recover. And so they, they rarely achieved their goals. So the, the war that in which the, the Scanian War, which was about recovering Scania, ended up being, resulting in the permanent loss of Scania. And that was pretty much the end of, uh, of Denmark as a major, major naval contender in the Baltic with Sweden. By the end of the 17th century, Russia had emerged from the time of troubles, as they call it there, uh, of internal strife and dynastic bickering and uh, civil war to, to try to figure out who was going to be the czar. Um, and when Peter the Great came to the throne, he really said it created the modern Russian state, um, that uh, a unified state ruling over a very large territory and he modernized that state from its, its medieval organization. And one of the things he was intent on was naval power. He, you know, he, he famously studied shipbuilding himself, masquerading as a shipwright in Dutch shipyards, supposedly. You know, when to, he, he traveled widely to try to learn all the things he needed to know to make Russia into a modern uh, empire. Uh, and so uh, Russia, which had been shut out of the Baltic from 1617, the Peace of Stolbova, um, had uh, re-emerged into the Baltic under Peter the Great and started building up a substantial fleet. Uh, and then in uh, what in Sweden is called and elsewhere the Great Northern War of the early um, 18th century had land and naval components. Uh, and that's where Russia really emerged as uh, Sweden's primary opponent. Uh, as it is today. And so for the last 300 years or and a little bit more, um, Swedish defense policy has leaned east. Uh, it's, always, uh, it's always been assumed that the primary enemy will be Russia. Russia may be able to attract some allies, uh, but Swedish defense has for more than 300 years assumed that uh, the enemy will be uh, Russia. And in most of the wars fought in the 18th century, until the last major land campaign that Sweden was engaged in in the Napoleonic period, Russia was the enemy. And how is the sort of this the shape of that relationship changing in the modern world today? Well, uh, Sweden uh, after after it lost Finland to Russia in in its last major war uh, in the Napoleonic period, um, embarked on a policy of neutra armed neutrality, of non-alliance. Uh, in various ways, and concentrated on building up an internal defense. There was a big period in the 19th century of building all of these huge inland fortifications as a kind of uh, citadel of retreat should uh, Sweden be invaded by the Russians. And you know, they couldn't be stopped at the coast, and these central fortresses would be the area from which Sweden would uh, counterattack. Um, and then uh, in the 20th century, Sweden was neutral in the world wars. Um, uh, and uh, was uh, in, caught in a, in a fairly difficult situation in regards to Nazi Germany, for example, uh, in that the, the Germans had occupied Norway, uh, the Finns were fighting the Russians, and Sweden had supported Finland with volunteers and some equipment at the beginning of the, the Winter War of uh, Finland against Russia, because Russia's the enemy, and the Finns are... Swedes, Swedish cousins, in a way. Um, but then Germany was a potential threat, 
Sweden didn't feel that it had the resources or the capability to uh, fight an all-out war against Germany and so decided to accommodate Germany's desires. And for Germany, it was okay if Russia, uh, Sweden remained neutral, but you could say uh, not uh, antagonistically neutral. Um, after the Second World War uh, in, the, in the development of the Cold War, uh, it was very clear to the Swedish government that Russia was was the enemy, or Russia was the potential threat. And Swedish defense policy was based around the idea of repelling or um, stopping a, a Russian invasion. The uh, And, of course, because NATO's enemy was the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc, there was a lot of common cause there. Um, and so there was a lot of behind-the-scenes cooperation between the officially uh, non-aligned Sweden and NATO. Um, and so the, the current move towards NATO uh, is, is, is not something that's come completely out of the blue, that there, there has been a certain amount of cooperation with NATO all along. And the Swedes have carried out joint military exercises with NATO for decades um, that because, because of a common enemy. Uh, what's changing now is the idea of Sweden giving up 200 years of official non-aligned status to become a member of a, a military alliance, a defense alliance, um, which is going to call it, which is requiring some significant changes in everything from procurement to the law. Uh, under most of the Swedish army, uh, Swedish army is a mixture of professionals and uh, national service conscripts people who do two years of national service, which has been reinstituted. But the law specifically states that national service soldiers may only be used in the defense of Sweden. But joining NATO means that Sweden may be called upon to defend Poland or Turkey or who knows. Uh, and so it's a legal question now, can national service soldiers be employed outside of Sweden's borders to defend a NATO ally. Um, and that's and, and there there are lawyers for the Defense Department who are trying to wrap their heads around that. Uh, and one of the questions they'll have to answer is, can they consider that the defense of a NATO ally is the defense of Sweden, or does that law need to be rewritten and does uh, Parliament have to, the Riksdag, have to uh, change the law as to how national servicemen are used, so um, you know th that's uh, just that's one of many conundrums or challenges that uh, joining NATO will pay, will pose for Sweden. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating story, Fred. Thank you very much for sharing it with us today, and I think so important having that historical perspective. Well, my my pleasure to be with you, Sam. And uh, this is, I, and I'm uh, as an historian, I'm always happy to see that the stuff that I'm studying from 400 years ago and more is relevant today. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please make sure that you leave us a review on whatever app you are listening on, especially if you are listening on iTunes. It's particularly effective. We'll read out any review that you leave. It's hugely important because it helps us climb up the rankings, and that helps us get as many people as possible listening to Maritime History on the Mariner's Mirror podcast. We also have a fantastic YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out with some really remarkable videos. Most recent 
recently the animation of a cutaway of a 17th century first-rate man of war explaining how everything worked on a naval ship around the time of the Great Fire of London. Uh, The podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation, so do please make sure you do everything in your power to check out what those brilliant institutions are up to. In particular, please check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It's a brilliant new project, filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. It really is astounding. Just Google it, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And please join the Society for Nautical Research. You can do that at snr.org.uk. It's a brilliant way not only of finding out all about the world's maritime history from the very best in the business but also of meeting people there's nothing wrong with it at all Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.